to the Inclusive Belonging Podcast. This is Heather Cummings from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Today is June 13th, 2019, and we have the pleasure to speak with an individual who will be sharing his perspective of being a gay man from the silent generation. We hope you enjoy this podcast and can make connections or gain new insights, remembering that inclusion begins with belonging. So um, I want to thank you for agreeing to um, participate in an interview with me um, so we can just talk about the aspect of um, your, your experiences um, from the perspective, you know, of, you know, how you've seen things change over the years and, and where, where, what your lens was through that. So um, the first question that I'm going to ask is what um, was your coming out experience like? And do you think it might have been any different if you had to do it all over again now? So just starting off, what was oh, I, Yeah, I like that question. Uh, first of all, a little uh, combat. I have worked really hard to come up with uh, answers I had thought out with some regard to their being of interest and making me look good. And every once in a while, I consider the truth. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and isn't that how we all go? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I just wanted to own it. Uh, and that's as transparent as I expect to be. Uh, coming out, and I, you and I have talked about this before, uh, when, I, when it first became public that I was gay, it was because I was doing things a gay boy would do uh, and not feel the need to hide it. Uh, it's, to me, it was just fun. Yeah, uh, I did know that there was something different about me. I didn't know gay from Shinola. Okay. But I, I did know from maybe age 10, about thereabout, that there was something about me that other people didn't expect to see in, in anyone else, and that my parents didn't expect to see. But coming out was, um, I knew I was out, or what being out was like, uh, because I asked someone about a, a specific honor at school, and was told by a student that uh, you don't live honorably, you have sex with, uh, with males. And that's the first I knew that what I was doing was not approved and was outside the norm. So that was coming out by insult or whatever. And, uh, yeah. Uh, next time, I was in the Army for nine years. And you, at that time, you didn't get to be gay and be in the Army. Except I did. Um, the, the Army did extensive background investigations about me. I had top secret security clearances. I was the... Uh, enabling officer for uh, security clearances for NATO top secret in in Europe, and uh, so I, I knew. And you know, after going out of the service, of course, they had to do thorough background checks, and they would have found out. And I look back now, and I see indicators where the army knew I was gay, but I was a good soldier, and so uh, uh, they said, "All right, you know, if he embarrasses us, we'll kick him out. But as long as he's being a good soldier and all, then you know." They were glad to have me and sorry to see me go. So, but I was, from time to time, indirectly reminded uh, to tow the, literally the straight and narrow. And uh, I wasn't aware of exactly what that was then, but it's in reflection that I know that's what was going on. And when you say that, um, you're meaning that specific to when you were in the Army or also when you were younger growing up? When I was in the Army. Okay. Only when I was in the Army. Okay. Yeah. I didn't pay attention to rules of that kind very much outside the service. And the Army has, the Army's different from being a civilian. And it has rules, and if you break those rules, you, you can get in trouble. And especially, I had a lot of responsibility. 
and I like that. I like being challenged. I like being the, the boss, and uh, I wanted to keep that job. Um, one of the things I did look forward to, though, is when I said I was leaving the service was to be freer to pursue uh, relationships with other men. And uh, that happened, and I liked it. Um, so yeah, the, there are these sections of my life. I never, after that, I didn't go around saying that, hi, I'm gay. Uh, but I was always surprised when people didn't know. Um, I had a girlfriend in San Francisco, and we were together for two or three years, and she didn't know. Uh, eventually, her sister picked it up and tried to tell her, and she wouldn't believe it because we were uh, having experiences that she thought obviously weren't, uh, weren't gay. And, uh, but finally, I cared about her, and I was, tired of, I was tired of her not being fully aware. And so I took her out to dinner one night and told her. And it was really, really hard for both of us. My friends had, yeah, my friends had picked it up. People generally knew, and there were rumors in the background. And again, I thought everybody knew. Uh, it's just like, you know, how do you not know? Here I am, uh, you know, at that time, 35 years old, single in San Francisco. <laughs> how do you not put that together? So... Um, after that, it's just, you know, I, I never had an official coming out. It's been kind of gradual and no big Shazam moment. Uh, there, were sh there were specific events with individuals, but uh, none people in general. And I expected the people I was open with to be open about me. So, what, so, so let, me, let me ask you this, because you had said, you know, around 10 years old, you were um, at a point where you kind of, you know, you were figuring out that things were different, you weren't quite sure what that, what that looked like. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I don't know if I, if I <laughs> captured that right, but let me ask you a question specific to that, because now, um, like, you look at 10-year-olds at this point, and, and, it, and it would still be, I, I imagine, difficult. That, what, when was that, when you were 10? The, the year? Yeah. If you don't 1953. Know. I was born in 1943. Okay. At the end so of 1943. about 1953? Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, like, if you, do you think it might have been any different if you had to do it all over again now? Like, if you were, if you were that 10-year-old now? I have no idea. Um, I don't know if 10-year-olds are presented with usable information about sexuality. Okay. I don't know. The times are different, of course, but I don't know if they're that much different for a 10-year-old. They would be different, I think, for a teenager, considerably different for a teenager, but I don't know about that age. And the only thing I knew, it wasn't sex specifically. I had a general undertone that there was a sexual aspect to it, but there was something different about me. We were, my family and I were uh, at a picnic and there was a man nearby, he was very handsome, he was wearing red shorts. And uh, this was very young age. And I was, I couldn't keep my eyes off that guy. My guess is he was about 25 or so. And, uh, but I knew I didn't want my parents to know that I was looking at him. And they did, of course. And uh, my brother was really direct about it. He says, Let's go over and look at that man. He's beautiful. I, I'll always love that he said it like that. Okay? But I didn't, I, I didn't feel as open about what I saw about saying a man is beautiful as he did. Yeah. And it was, it was, we came from different perspectives. And uh, so 
I knew there was something, and I knew that it was tied together with sex. But as far as putting, as far as there being an idea of queer or gay, or you know, a group, I didn't know how many people there might be until I was a high school boy, let's say a junior or senior in high school, and my buddy says. Uh, I was at work at a grocery store, and my buddy said, uh, we're going to go down to the old plantation and uh, beat up queers. And I, I, was, I was really curious about that. I said, old plantation? I said, what are you talking about? I said, it's a gay bar near downtown. It's one of the oldest gay bars in the country. I said, really? And I was getting information, okay? Yeah. So the, uh, you know, I never said anything else to the guys about it. The next week, I went down there. And I walked in, and I was 17, and I, I was gorgeous. And I walked into that bar, and it got quiet. I didn't know why. I was embarrassed, okay? And I sat down at the bar. I, I was totally illegal being in there. And the guy on my right was bragging that he was a doctor and all this kind of stuff and trying to impress me. I wasn't, okay? The guy on the left said he was a plumber. Now that impressed me. This is a regular guy who's like me in this very important way. And I didn't go home with him, and home with somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> that, was a, that was a real eye-opener for me, that there are all these people, and they don't look funny. They look like everybody else. Yeah. And this is my tribe. Yeah. It was a big day for me, oh, big day. Great. And it started out as something really ugly. Yeah, so anyway, that's what happened. Wow. Yeah. So have you, um, have you experienced a shift in the LGBTQ plus culture during your lifetime? And was there like any pivotal moments for you in that, like from your perspective? AIDS epidemic okay. was huge for me. I was never part of the uh, fairly formalized gay culture. I mean, I would go to the Castro and, and uh, go to bars there or uh, meet friends for dinner there. But I wasn't really a part of that. People had to explain things to me all the time. And I just didn't know. Uh, I, was, I had a, a mainline job. Um, I, did, I lived in a, in a, you know, being San Francisco, it was definitely mixed. And I found out there were doctors and lawyers and all like me. And, uh, and we socialized. But as far as a community, as a community was concerned, like politics or marching or something like that, until the AIDS epidemic. And uh, that's when it became general that these are people like me and they're threatened. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I became more involved in, but not as involved. I had friends who helped start ACT UP and other people who helped start uh, Queer Nation. And these people were very directly involved in it. I would support them from time to time, but I was never a mainline part of that. So. Any other pivotal moments? That sounds like it's a, it was a pretty big one. It was. Um, people I knew and cared about. And uh, I also watched the politics tighten. And that's where, I, for the first time ever, I could hear or say the word queer and not start to shake or be really afraid or, or something else. And it's because the Queer Nation and others took that word and used it as a club instead of something to be afraid of. Yeah. And um, they would say it in order to make people who weren't comfortable with that word even more uncomfortable. And I was glad to see that. So, yeah. Well, and, and I can imagine that the more um, it was, it was you know, said and used and discussed, uh, the more socialized it became so that yeah. it wasn't so scary. Like Baptist. 
Baptists were originally called Baptists as a slur because they put people in water and dunked them. Okay. And they go, Baptist, okay? Well, Baptists said, yeah, we're Baptist. So, yeah, something uh, queers and Baptists share. It's <laughs> <laughs> an interesting correlation. Yeah. Um, are there specific pieces of your identities that overlap or intersect, making life either easier or more challenging for you? As a gay man? Yeah. Uh, I'm Catholic. Okay. And, you know, it's like so much in life. And it's harder for me to be Catholic because of what's, because of uh, the children who have been outraged and the priest whom I had cared about doing horrible things and not being penitent about it and not doing the kinds of things in response to it that they were trying to teach other people to do. And I've had a real hard time going back to the church. At the same time, I knew priests who were openly gay. My spiritual advisor was a, a brilliant uh, Jesuit. And he talked openly in groups of other Christians, non-Catholics and Catholics alike, about his boyfriend. Well, he's broken two rules there, okay? But he did it, and he had enough power in the church that he could say that, he could be free to say that, and not get in trouble. So there's been a, there's been a lot of gay activity in the Roman church, but none of it is officially okay. And that mirrors what the rest of society was like for a long time. Army didn't care if I was gay. Army cared if I got caught and embarrassed the army. Okay? And it was, I found that kind of, and I, I don't see it as hypocrisy. To me, it was like, you know, this makes sense. The guy's breaking the rules, but he's not hurting us, and he's a good officer. Okay. So, and the church, the church has been, a lot of the church has been like that. And there's an irony to it. I was uh, active in a group in Denver called, um, um, what's it called? Dignity. And uh, it's uh, gay women and men who gather outside of the auspices of the church, Catholics. And uh, when there was the initial crackdown on dignity by the organized church, uh, ended up at the desk of the uh, Catholic Archbishop of San Francisco. He went on to the Vatican after that job. And he had to call in all the the leaders in dignity and, and tell them that they could not worship in churches and other stuff. And he left it at that. And one of the dignity people made the mistake of forcing his hand by saying, can we use Catholic priests in our services? The bishop hadn't outlawed that, but when it was asked to him directly, he had to take the party line. Okay? He's Catholic, yeah? and uh, it was a bad thing. But he never went after that. And as a result of its being outlawed, it's one of these ironies, um, then only the best priest ministered to dignity. Some straight, some gay, it didn't make any difference. These were people who were brave, who loved parishioners, who loved the church, and wanted to bring goodness to people around them. And so they risked everything they had to do that. So I've run into both, both sides of that as being Catholic. The other is the military. Um, the irony of it is the guys in the army, a lot of guys in the army are really comfortable and prefer the company of men. Not homosexual, but they, uh, they really like being around men. And every once in a while it becomes affection, and then every once in a while it turns to sex. And it's, uh, I never hear it talked about. I never hear the kinds of experiences I had with other officers being talked about yes. by anybody. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And they were really wonderful. And there were guys that I really cared about. Um, three of the four were married, had 
loved their families and the whole thing, but they also loved uh, the soldiers they served with. So, yeah. Did that answer your question? It did, it did. I, I mean, I have so many more questions around that. I'm just wondering, I mean, how, those intersections um, that you found both with the Catholic Church um, as well as, as with the military, um, do you see that either of those, that either of those have, have changed significantly since, you know, when, since the point that you were active? I mean, I know with the Catholic Church, that, that's present, but maybe more with the military. Do you see any changes in how things, are, how things would be now? Well, part of it is the legal structure, and the other part of it is the attitude of the guys on the ground. Uh, the legal structure has changed remarkably. It started with uh, Clinton and Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I lived Don't Ask, Don't Tell uh, before it was ever public policy. And uh, it worked okay for me and my purpose as I saw, my, my interests as I saw them. I didn't want enough for myself, knowing what I know now. I didn't want enough for myself, but I got what I wanted, which was to stay an officer and do a good job. The laws change in that. Guys in the service, officers, non-commissioned officers, and uh, enlisted people, some of whom will always uh, not want to be around homosexuals, especially open homosexuals, and will feel threatened by homosexuals and want to use violence in order to relieve that sense of threat. So the, the law has changed, and some of the stuff on the ground has changed. And it's funny how it changes. There's a, there's a song, uh, and I, I don't remember the name of it, but it's uh, people use uh, funny exercises as they sing the song. And it says, call me tomorrow, and I'm putting my finger on my hand. Or, you know, they hold up like a telephone to their ear, yeah. and it's all acted out. Well, there are a number of groups in Iraq and Afghanistan, soldiers, Marines, uh, Navy, Army guys, who acted that out. And some of them played very convincingly the roles of women. And others played the roles of, uh, they looked like uh, effeminate male dancers. And it was hilarious. And it was so much fun. And these, there was not a guy in there I wouldn't have been next to on a line, yeah. okay? Not one. So that's a big change. And I think that's the way, you know, everything has changed for, I don't know about other groups, but for homosexuals, it's been on a one-to-one. -one. You have a friend that you care about, and all of a sudden you know he's gay, and so you are not as afraid of gay people anymore. And as that stays longer in the military, it's not going to change everybody's mind, okay? but it's going to improve things. Well, it, it, one, one thing that's discussed a lot in, in the diversity and inclusion world is um, the aspect of gravitating toward those things that you don't know and that make you uncomfortable uh, because it's through that that then you can become less afraid of that yeah. diverse area that you might not have known in someone. So yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, do you have, oh, this is a good one. <laughs> okay. So do you have an opinion on which letters are used um, in the acronym to represent the community? So LGBT, LGBTQ+, LGBTQIA, LGBTQIAAA, any <laughs> thoughts? <laughs> I do. And uh, first of all is compassion, affection, and some love. Uh, 
about me and my tribe and others who are like us wanting to be recognized and wanting to be accepted and having it made somewhat official. And it's where I can say it. I am, I am one of these and uh, not be terrified to still be afraid, but not uh, a little bit more brave by being associated with others. And the larger the organization, the less the fear, I think. Uh, it confuses me on a practical level. Uh, when I saw LGBT, I think that was what it was at first. When I saw LGBT, I thought, I don't know what all those letters mean. Okay, and I, even now I know even less about what they all mean. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't mean, I shouldn't be flip about that because they're important to some people. Uh, but to me, it's cumbersome. And, uh, you know, I, I would like to see something that says, uh, I don't know. It's like, like there's, a, there's a phrase, non-whites, okay, which means, you know, those of us who aren't white. Yeah. And uh, that maybe the same kind of phrase can serve me and my tribes. I don't know. Uh, to me, it's just a little cumbersome. But I have no agenda against it at okay. all, as long as it's helpful. Yeah. So, yeah. So any other thoughts that you want to share about your experiences and your journey? Well, it's generally been, been a substitution of love for fear. And, uh, and of knowledge of, uh, even knowledge I wasn't willing to put out, that was forced out, benefited me. All knowledge that got out there benefited me. I wasn't harmed. There, there have been people who were harmed by more knowledge. So tell me more about what you mean. The more people who know who I am, the better off I am. And the better off the community I'm in is, I think, okay? I don't think, I think secrecy uh, didn't serve me well. Um, although I, there were times I clung to it desperately. And there were times maybe it did serve, actually I think there were times maybe it did serve me well. But the, my experience is that the more is known, the more I accept of what is known. And the more I just proclaim it, not hurl it out there or something this is who I am who was the guy who ran for president the Mormon guy he'd been head of the LA Olympics and governor of Massachusetts Mitt Romney okay okay great guy and I'm not a Republican okay great great guy he was successful in so many areas a decent heart he's political so this stuff you you know you wish you hadn't seen could have made, I think, a great president. But he was fought on the right in the Republican Party. He was not himself. He would react to the, to the reactionaries, and he would move in, in their direction. If he could have just been himself, I think he would have, himself would have been more successful self. And I've kind of had that sense in my own mind. The more I am myself, without apology, uh, without, uh, without, aggression, yeah. uh, the better off I am and the better people around me feel. So that's... That's really powerful. I mean, it's so important because if there's anything that you're feeling you're having to keep behind, then you can't fully be present, I can imagine. Yeah. Can't be available to other people's help yeah. either. There was a guy in AA who was talking one time, not that I'm a member of AA, I was at a meeting, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
this guy, he says, you know, before I came into AA, I wanted to hide everything about me. And he says, now that I've been here, and I've been sober for about years, the man said, he said, I want everybody to know everything. He says, that surprised me. He said, I didn't intend to move in this direction. He says, anything you want to know? He said, I think. <laughs> you know, he's cute about it. Uh, he said, ask me. And I found out where a similar circumstance allowed me to help somebody at a meeting. But uh, I saw myself in him. And if I hadn't made all of my information about myself pretty public, uh, I wouldn't have been available. But he got up to leave the meeting. And uh, I grabbed him by the arm and I pulled him down. You can't see me, but I'm a really big guy. And I pulled him down to the chair next to me. He looked at me with eyes wide open. I said, stay so. And so we waited till the afternoon of the meeting, and I'll cut it short. We talked for a long time. And I said, tell me what's keeping you drinking. And he did. He told me what it was, and it was very specific. And I said, I do that. And, and that's the way I felt about it. I do that, and I don't drink. I haven't had a drink in two years. He goes, really? He hasn't had a drink since. So that, to me, was the power of being able to say who I am without shame, without regret, because it can open me up to other people who need to who need to know that. Yeah. So yeah. Not an island. Not an island. I didn't get here by myself. There were people I leaned on and loved and needed, and uh, people I ignored. Good people uh, with good intent, and I ignored. But they planted the seed, and they knew what they were doing. So. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, any other? Any other things? Yeah, well, this is a lot more fun than I thought it would be. I love talking about myself, if you can't tell. <laughs> I love hearing about you, and you don't know how appreciative I am. Oh, it's fun. Yeah, yeah. I'm learning so much, so I always yeah. do when we talk. I always do. Yeah. I just waved at the recorder. <laughs> it's still, it's still ticking. It's still going. Yeah. So, all right. I really appreciate um. I appreciate you talking with me. Thank you for asking me. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this Inclusive Belonging podcast. Please subscribe to hear future podcasts and check out inclusivebelonging.com for blogs, vlogs, and resources on different areas of diversity and inclusion.